Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton and I'm your host. In November 1970, U.S. Special Forces attempted to rescue POWs from captivity in North Vietnam. The Sante Raid was one of the most complex and dangerous missions of the war in Southeast Asia. It laid the groundwork for future joint forces operations by serving as a model of organization, cooperation, and flexibility of execution. This is the first of three episodes with Colonel John Gargas, United States Air Force, retired. In 1970, then Major Gargas was a key mission planner for the Sante Raid. Because of his expertise in navigation over Vietnam, he also served as the lead navigator on the mission, helping to guide all the raiders behind enemy lines, undetected, arriving at the Sante prison compound at 0218 on the morning of November 21st, 1970. In this episode, we discuss his early life, including his own escape from communist Czechoslovakia at the age of 15, his early years in the Air Force when he developed some very unique navigation skills, how he later became involved in the planning for this top-secret Sante raid, and how they set up a mock-up of the Sante prison in Florida to secretly train for the mission. So let's get right to this. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. Uh, I just want to thank you uh, for everything that you did, the sacrifices you made. Uh, you made uh, some choices to go into this mission uh, to risk your own life, and you did it willingly uh, because you were trying to help out the prisoners, and uh, you didn't have to do it, but you did it. And I know a lot of POWs, and I've talked to them a lot. Uh, about what your raid did for them. And every single one of them tells me that what you all did had a very significant and a very positive impact on their lives and their living conditions after the Sante raid. So thank you, sir. I, I really appreciate it. Well, you, you're welcome. That was definitely the highlight of my Air Force career. And, uh, uh, perhaps highlight of of my life. Uh, it uh, it was a thrilling experience. Uh, disappointing that we did not rescue anyone, and uh, we were so gratified to find out once they came home uh, how much uh, their livelihood improved because of the raid. Unfortunately, we were not aware of uh, the good things that happened after the raid, because after the raid, we were dispersed, went in our different directions. So much of the information we had was classified, and nobody was telling us uh, that things for the POWs had improved until they came home. So uh, for us, for all practical purposes, uh, our Sante raid did not end until uh, 
the Rasperos reunion uh, that uh, took place in San Francisco when uh, many of the Sante Raiders who were able to uh, attend got to meet the POWs. That's when we started rejoicing. And uh, that's when we really appreciated ourselves that, gosh, we did a great thing, even though we did not rescue anyone. Yeah, you sure did. Absolutely. And um, it, it just it made their lives so much better because it forced the Vietnamese to bring them all together in consolidated living quarters. So they before the raid, many of them were in solitary isolation for many months, up to many years. And after the raid, they had 40 to 50 in a in, in a in a cell block after that. So it. it help their morale tremendously. Um, so before we get started talking in detail today uh, about the Sante raid and, and, and the lead up to that and how that came about, I'd really like to talk a little bit uh, about you so people understand where you're coming from. So something really interesting about your background that I've learned that you actually ex, uh, escape communism yourself when you were 15 years old. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about that and explain what happened? Oh, okay. Uh, well, that is a very significant part of my life. Uh, well, I was fortunate enough that uh, my mother uh, was born in Pennsylvania. She was born to a mining family that returned back to Czechoslovakia when Czechoslovakia became an independent country after the First World War. So because my mother was born uh, an American citizen, uh, I and my brother and sister, the children, her children, uh, acquired a claim to American citizenship. The only thing that was required uh, for her children to do is to be present, be physically present on U.S. soil before uh, the 16th birthday. So that was my situation. Now, what happened? Uh, after the war, uh, the whole family had an invitation to come to the United States because uh, my the whole family, my grandparents, and uh, uh, two uncles uh, returned to the United States. My uh, mother was the only one who stayed behind because she got married. Okay. So we, uh, my father did not want to uh, immigrate to the United States. He was involved in politics, and he believed uh, that we would have America in Czechoslovakia. Unfortunately, 1948, uh, the communists uh, took over the country, and the uh, uh, border was closed. You know, Iron Curtain uh, came up, and uh, travel was restricted. So uh, here we were. Uh, the children could get American passports to travel to the United States uh, only. Uh, those passports would be valid only for that travel. Uh, I was already... Uh, uh, 15 in my 16th year, I was 15. So uh, 
the family decided that, uh, uh, you know, I had to get out of the country. Well, uh, I was not fully aware of everything that was happening, uh, but uh, uh, my father made uh, arrangements uh, with the consulate in uh, Bratislava and uh, in the embassy in the uh, in Prague uh, to uh, get me out of the country. All I was told after I received my passport is that uh, I should not reveal to anybody that I do have an American passport. And of course, I knew the hazard of that already because I had already lived for a year and a half under communism, and I saw what was happening in the country. So all I knew is that uh, uh, my uh, departure, if possible, if it would ever occur, would have to be hush-hush. Uh, well, uh, things were happened, uh, happened rapidly. Two weeks after I got my passport, uh, I had an invitation to uh, come to Prague ready to travel. So, wow, uh, you know, I wasn't really ready to it, for it yet, but uh, my family was. So uh, uh, we came to Prague. In Prague, I was introduced uh, to uh, a group of uh, Americans who uh, were returning back to the States uh, after uh, a visit. Uh, the travel group was uh, 26 uh, number. There were 26 people in it. And I was introduced to an old gentleman who was going to be my translator and uh, who was going to turn me over uh, to whoever from my family would uh, turn up to pick me up in New York. Uh, because things happened so fast, the only uh, notice uh, that my family in the United States had that I was coming uh, uh, on Queen Elizabeth uh, on the 7th uh, of uh, December, 1949. Well, uh, so every, everything uh, was normal as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I said goodbye to my family and I was hoping that my brother and sister would follow me. When we stopped at the border, they collected uh, all the passports and uh, uh, they were returned to us very shortly. So w everything uh, was normal. Uh, we reached the border, and uh, the border agent uh, uh, collected all the passports of that group, 26 of us. And uh, shortly after that, uh, they were uh, returned. And the uh, uh, border agent said uh, that he hopes that uh, someday we would return back to uh, uh, Czechoslovakia again and see how uh, the communist government was improving things and how the you know, propaganda. Uh, after we crossed the border, I noticed this gentleman who was escorting me uh, was crying profusely. And uh, I thought, well, okay, he's crying because uh, obviously he will, he's old, he won't be coming back again. And then he tells me how lucky I was that the reason why I was in that group, because uh, his wife died two weeks before that, and I took her place uh, on the group of returning Americans. And that's how I was able to sneak out of the country. 
because when they collected our passports, they did not really pay much attention to it. They did not check off the names. Uh, I was dressed in American clothes that my uh, grandmother sent me. So uh, I was taken for uh, an American boy uh, who was uh, returning back to the United States. So that was my escape. Wow. Uh, that that's a wild so story. I, you didn't even know. You had no, no idea. At the I, time. I no. My family kept that away from me because they uh, were afraid that I would give myself away. So uh, I was completely innocent. And then it all of a sudden occurred to me the sacrifice that my family ha- uh, made and uh, how they will probably suffer because of that. And they did. So. That was my coming to the United States. And once uh, my passport was stamped uh, in New York, uh, I was an American citizen by birth, not by naturalization. Uh, I uh, realized my claim to American citizenship. So here I am. Well, that's an outstanding story. And you, so you're certainly somebody that doesn't take freedom for granted. Oh, you, yeah, you know that. You, you understand the sacrifices. And, and so I think it's really special that you then went on uh, to join the Air Force. You, you actually, when you went to college, you joined the Air Force ROTC program and, and eventually were commissioned uh, in the Air Force as a second lieutenant. Can you talk a little bit about uh, those choices and why you decided to go into the Air Force? Uh, yes. Uh, the reason why I signed up with ROTC uh, was to get a deferment. Uh, Korean War was on, and uh, uh, the, my friends who were going uh, from the same high school who were going to uh, Bowling Green State University did the same thing. They said, hey, uh, we need to uh, join the ROTC so we can get a deferment. Uh, okay, uh, that's what I did. And uh, I enjoyed the uh, experience, uh, first two years of ROTC. But uh, during my uh, the, uh, second year uh, in college in, at the university, uh, we received a visitor uh, from the State Department. He was a recruiter. And I was, in, my major was international relations. My hope was that someday I would work for the State Department, maybe uh, for the United Nations. So I was preparing myself for that. Well, this staffer uh, from the State Department uh, surprised me because he was in on my escape. He knew my father, and he was also in uh, on the uh, incident when uh, American passports of my brother and sister were confiscated, and the U.S. government com- uh, complained about that, and uh, my family requested, hey, uh, just leave us alone, we have enough problem, so the- everything was dropped. So this individual, uh, Mr. Fisher, was at the embassy in Prague, and what a surprise it was. Well, uh, my surprise was that also that 
uh, he told me, uh, Mr. Gargas, you will never get a security clearance uh, to get an important job at the State Department because you have family behind the Iron Curtain. Wow. So here I was. Uh, I'm preparing myself for a career, and uh, I won't be able to get any place. Well, I had an opportunity to uh, go for advanced ROTC, and which would result in an Air Force commission. And because I wanted to fly a four-year commitment, I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So that was my decision to uh, go with the Air Force. And once I got in the Air Force, I, uh, uh, and I, once I completed, uh, once I was in nav- navigator training, I applied for a regular commission. I was able to get a regular commission. And guess what? With that regular commission, I was able to get a top secret clearance. Yeah, that that's funny. And, 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 th- and, and this is the thing that Mr. Fisher told me, I would never get a top secret clearance. Uh, well, you know, rule, rules change, and I have no idea how the security investigated me and why I got uh, top secret clearance, but I was delighted. So that was the start of my Air Force career. Yeah, that's. I think that's really special, and it's funny because they're telling you up front you're not going to be able to get a top secret security clearance, and then years later, uh, you were involved in one of the most closely held secrets of the Vietnam War. Um, that uh, that's just amazing. Um, so when you're you're getting ready to graduate college and get your commission in the Air Force. Uh, how did you happen upon uh, deciding to become a navigator? Okay. Uh, I started in the pilot training, and th- that was very short-lived. Uh, I was eliminated for uh, uh, flying deficiency, uh, but because I had uh, excellent T-scores in everything else, uh, I uh, was offered uh, a chance to go to navig- uh, to uh, navigator training, and I accepted that because I wanted to fly. So that's how I became a navigator. While I was uh, in a navigator school at Harlingen Air Force Base, uh, I met my uh, future wife, and uh, this month we'll be celebrating our 62nd uh, anniversary. Oh, congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. Well, I guess things work out the way they're supposed to because they sure needed an experienced navigator during the Sante raid, and um, you got everybody exactly where they needed to be uh, at exactly the right time. So thank God for that. Um, After you graduated and after you got your, your navigator training uh, what kind of aircraft did you did you fly in initially as a navigator okay. for? My uh, first assignment was at uh, McGuire Air Force Base. I was flying for Military Airlift Command uh, C-118s to Europe, Africa, and uh, Pacific. Uh, I did that for uh, uh, five and a half years. Uh, last couple of years, I worked at the command post uh, as a uh, not mission planner, but as a uh, as a navigator who was uh, uh, developing flight plans for transatlantic flights. 
Okay. And and um, how many years uh, did you serve as a navigator before the the start of the Vietnam War? Uh, Vietnam. Well, uh, there was uh, six years as a navigator, and uh, then I uh, got an assignment at Texas A and M University, uh, teaching Air Force ROTC. Okay. Uh, from from there, I volunteered uh, for Vietnam. I volunteered for uh, a special program. It was called Stray Goose. Uh, it was an uh, aircraft, uh, which today is known as Combat Talon. It had terrain-following equipment, and also it had Fulton Recovery uh, System, uh, which picked up people uh, from, uh, from the ground into the air. Now, the reason uh, why I volunteered for that is that uh, uh, during uh, uh, no, part of my uh, teaching, involved showing cadets at Texas A&M movies, uh, what's happening in the Air Force. And uh, one of the things was uh, uh, a clip about uh, uh, picking up personnel from the ground. So I said, oh, gosh, you know, this has a possibility for uh, Vietnam. Now, one of my colleagues uh, who also volunteered with me for this program, uh, had been involved in uh, catching satellites uh, that uh, uh, were floating down over the Pacific Ocean, and uh, they used American system uh, to retrieve these satellites. So uh, he had been the first ace who picked up five first five satellites, and then he said, "Gosh, now I want to pick up people from the ground." So. <laughs> Anyway, the two of two of us uh, volunteered for the program, and uh, our uh, ROTC assignments were curtailed uh, by several months, so we could go to uh, Pope Air Force Base to uh, train in, in this special aircraft, and then uh, went to Vietnam. Now, in Vietnam, uh, <laughs> it was the first force reduction. So our unit lost the dedicated uh, uh, mission planner, individual who couldn't fly uh, because he had too much intelligence information. But, and he flight planned all the missions for the crews. And, of course, we were flying over North Vietnam because we had, uh, uh, the, at that time, most sophisticated uh, navigational uh, capability. Uh, we had the first terrain-following radar uh, for C-130. And uh, uh, it, at that time, it was a top secret. Uh, we had fantastic uh, ECM equipment on board. Anyway, we were able to operate over North Vietnam at night, a single ship, uh, uh, without any... Well, there were problems, uh, uh, but uh, basically... We were very seldom detected until we wanted to be detected until, uh, uh, you know, but we always evaded, evaded damage from uh, enemy uh, missiles or uh, AAA. So because of that force reduction, we lost a mission planner. So guess who volunteered? 
<laughs> to be become a mission planner. Uh, so I, I did, and uh, I had an assistant. Our electronic warfare officer for my crew uh, became the intelligence officer. So we shared those duties. But my experience as mission planner for uh, uh, for the crews uh, all over North Vietnam. So I got to know the air order of battle, and also I understood the navigational systems, the their shortcomings. So uh, after Vietnam, uh, when I was uh, uh, assigned to Pope Air Force Base to uh, train uh, replacement crews, uh, not just navigators, but pilots as well, because uh, the terrain following system in those days were was quite complicated, needed a lot of manipulation. So uh, I was uh, a ground instructor for pilots and navigators, and then uh, also I was instructor in the air. Uh, then uh, I uh, we, we had uh, several conferences uh, with project officers. Uh, one project officer, Ben Karaljev, he was project officer for our, our Stray Goose Combat Talons. Another one, uh, Larry Ropka, uh, was a project officer for a clandestine program that flew also C-130s with uh, uh, identical equipment that we had. We would meet at conferences and uh, uh, plan for modifying C-130s uh, with equipment uh, that would fit, uh, that was specifically designed for C-130s. The first uh, aircraft that we had, Stray Goose aircraft, uh, had borrowed equipment. Uh, everything that was off the shelf, that was the best and so on, uh, they kind of uh, threw it together and uh, it, it had some problems. So we were trying to uh, straighten this out in the 1970 modification. Well, these two individuals that I just mentioned uh, got to know me uh, and knew what my experience was. And guess what? Both of these individuals, besides being project officers, were also assigned to SAXA. Now, SAXA uh, was the special assistance for uh, counterinsurgency and special activities in the Pentagon, super secret uh, uh, the unit. They were the ones who started uh, planning the Sante raid. So, what was it? Knew, what knew was it about the special talent system on the C one thirty that prevented you, uh, or prevented the enemy from seeing you while you flew over North Vietnam okay. at night? Was it because you were so low? to the ground with that terrain-following radar system? That, that is correct. That, okay, I'll, I'll tell you about... Well, our mission uh, was to uh, infiltrate agents into North Vietnam and resupply them. Also, uh, to drop uh, leaflets uh, all over North Vietnam. Now... Uh, Terrain-following radar allowed us to fly at such low altitude that we would uh, almost always uh, 
come uh, to uh, Vietnam undetected. Uh, sometimes we completed the whole mission and we were never detected. Uh, but uh, uh, detection was, uh, uh, was a given thing when uh, we had to climb to, uh, say, 30,000 feet to uh, drop leaflets from uh, uh, Red River Valley that would float down uh, to uh, uh, Hanoi uh, during the night, or when we uh, flew uh, over the Gulf of Tonkin, depending on the winds, and uh, we would drop uh, leaflets from, uh, well, our parameters were anywhere from 24,000 to 30,000 feet, uh, depending on, on the wind flow. We were told, uh, watch out for such and such wind flow uh, to drop uh, these 12 million leaflets or so on. So uh, when we had to, when we came to North Vietnam and we had to climb up, obviously, uh, we were detected and uh, uh, all the radars focused on us. Uh, so we had just limited time uh, to uh, uh, do our thing, uh, to uh, drop all those leaflets. Now, we had electronic warfare officers uh, who, whose equipment was top of the line. Uh, they were able to monitor all Soviet-made radars. So they knew which radar was following us. Was it AAA? Was it a uh, surface-to-air missile? And they were able to detect also the transfer of frequency uh, when... Uh, the uh, uh, surface-to-air missile uh, aimed at us was imminent. Well, uh, they would give us a warning. We would button down the aircraft. Uh, he would. Uh, he had the uh, special equipment that dropped chaff, create a cloud, and uh, we would dive down uh, to terrain following altitude and escape from Vietnam. So that's what we did. Uh, Vietnam in those days was a daytime war. Uh, so uh, at nighttime, uh, it, it was they were didn't have the alert uh, system uh, that they had uh, in being during the day. Uh, of course, Vietnamese were uh, forewarned every time the aircraft started uh, take, taking off, either from the ships in the Gulf of Tonkin or from Thailand or uh, Da Nang or from wherever. So they knew that attack was coming. Uh, they didn't have that information on us uh, when we took off from uh, Nha Trang. Uh, they didn't know uh, that there was an intrusion uh, into North Vietnam until they finally were able to pick us up uh, in their territory. So it was an exciting, it was an exciting mission. And this was the reason why they wanted. Well, the, the first question that General Mano uh, asked me, uh, when we were briefed, uh, whoa, uh, uh, what a uh, surprise that was when uh, uh, I found out that uh, why we were uh, called to Florida. Uh, and uh, uh, my first reaction was, yes, I've been there. <laughs> I have flown, it, my own crew flew uh, in the vicinity of Sante. Uh, Say, so we can do it. Well, the problem was, uh, it's not a single ship. Uh, 
we'd have to fly with helicopters. Right. To fly yeah. With other so, so that background that, that became is the challenge. Yeah, that background is really unique and set you up to make significant yes. contributions uh, to this important raid. So before we get there, I, I'd really like to understand a little better about the Sante prison that it was 20 or more miles outside of Hanoi and it, it was really in a rather remote area. So how was it that the United States and intelligence officers uh, came to know that there were POWs there in that prison camp? Did, did the prisoner signal reconnaissance aircraft in some way uh, i've heard stories about that can you yes. can you talk about that a little bit uh, yes well it, it was not so remote <clears throat> because it was just outside of a big uh, provincial city of sante <clears throat> but if you mean by remote uh, it was isolated uh, it, it wasn't in town uh, like uh, other prisons uh, were uh, in uh, in communities uh, this was kind of isolated in the corner by a river and so on. So uh, that was the isolation. Now, uh, there is a, a book by Ben Shemmer. Uh, he wrote it uh, in, in 1976. And in it, he uh, describes uh, how uh, Sante was discovered. And uh, uh, it's a little bit con contaminated uh, with the knowledge of post-Sante raid. <laughs> uh, the individuals that he was able to interview uh, in the Pentagon uh, were, were not, not the raiders. Sante raiders were not allowed to really uh, divulge any information to him. Uh, but... Uh, uh, some of the information that is in his book is kind of an afterthought. For example, uh, they already, uh, he mentioned that there were 50, they expected 55 uh, prisoners. Uh, wow. Uh, yes, I mean, that, that was true, but it was not known uh, when the prison was discovered. Uh, the We had extensive photography of the area. And... Uh, uh, report human reports that they received uh, said that there was a, a prison uh, west of Hanoi, due west, west of Hanoi. So uh, they were looking for photographs. Uh, we also had uh, a buffalo hunter uh, drones that were uh, flying uh, here and there. And uh, uh, yes, the prisoners in the prison were sending out signals. Now, uh, I, I I don't want to compromise any information that uh, I overheard here and there. Uh, there were ways for POWs to, uh, to signal things. Uh, in my discussions with POWs that I know, senior ranking officers that were at uh, Sante, they were most reluctant uh, to discuss anything. However, it was kind of a common knowledge because of, of this book and so on, 
that yes, there were signs uh, that were displayed uh, in a courtyard. Yes, so they were they were doing that, and I'm not going to get into uh, any details about what signs uh, they were, because Ben Shemmer even says that there were arrows pointing, uh, like come over here and pick us up in this area. Uh, that I, I can't fathom that. I I, I don't think. Uh, I think that was just uh, wishful thinking on uh, some of the Intel people. But there is one POW who will be on record. Uh, Leroy Stutz. There's a book that's coming out this today, uh, this month. Uh, it's written by the youngest uh, Special Forces guy, Terry. Terry Buckler. Okay. And in that, in that book, uh, Leroy Stutz says that, yes, I was out uh, in a courtyard and I folded uh, blankets in, in, in letters, P-O-W. And he said, lo and behold, here came a drone and he waved at the drone. And there is a photograph of that. So wow, that, that that's amazing. True, but uh, uh, for the for the record of, of this podcast, uh, Leroy, as far as I know, Leroy is the only one who confirmed to me that yes, we were sending signals and what kind of signals. Uh, other things that I've heard, uh, I will not get into. Okay, fair fair enough. That, that that makes total sense. So, when when our intelligence communities um, learned that there were POWs in this camp out right outside of Sante, do do you know who it was that came up with this idea for the raid to go in and 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 try to rescue the POWs? Do do you have any idea who that was that came up with that originally? Yeah. Yes, there. Well, I'm sure the intel types who uh, uh, had the photog photography and all of that uh, uh, said, "Hey, uh, may maybe uh, we could rescue some of these." Uh, but the idea, uh, the concept, really did not start uh, until uh, General Allen became aware of it. Okay. So, uh, there were uh, uh, General uh, Trantafelu, who was uh, Deputy for Intelligence and uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, he was kind of uh, on the side. He knew the information, and somehow, well, anyway, that information came to Saxa. I mentioned that. It's, uh, it was Saxa, the uh, Special Assistant uh, for Counter- uh, insurgency and special activities was headed by Brigadier General Donald Blackburn. Blackburn was uh, past chief of uh, studies and observation group uh, in Saigon who dealt with all kinds of clandestine things. And uh, our aircraft, Combat Talons aircraft, were uh, uh, airline for, uh, for SOG, okay. uh, the missions that we did. So this information came to him, and 
in his office, he had two Air Force officers, Ben Karaljev, uh, who was project officer for our combat talents, and Larry Ropka, who was a project officer uh, for the uh, 1198 uh, Operational and Testing Squadron at Norton Air Force Base that had uh, clandestine C-130s. So uh, Larry Ropka in Blackburn came to uh, General Allen's office, and that's when they said, yes, okay, uh, let's do something about it. So General Allen directed a feasibility study. Is it feasible? Can we really do such a thing? Uh, the chief of the feasibility study became Colonel Frisbee, and his navigator planner, Larry Ropka, is a navigator, was Larry. And they said, sure, we have combat talent aircrafts that have been working in that area, and uh, we'll just have to figure out how to uh, get them uh, together with helicopters and so on. Their first uh, I uh, indication or first plan was, well, it has to be a uh, SAR effort, search and rescue. Uh, we already had uh, uh, C-130s uh, refueling Jolly Green Giant helicopters. So they say, well, we're going to need several Jolly Green Giant helicopters to uh, go over there. And uh, uh, rescue is always accompanied by A1E aircraft from uh, Nakam Phanam. Uh, so uh, that that was the idea. Uh, how how can we uh, we get them uh, to uh, Sante? It would have to be a formation flight. Navigation in those days was very primitive. Uh, there was no way for A1E. Uh, with their navigation or Jolly Green Giants to uh, come into North Vietnam and uh, find right. a prison on a first pass. What, was so, Colonel Bull Simons involved in it? it when, when, did they, uh, when did they pull Colonel Simons into this to lead the operation? Okay. Uh, that happened after the, uh, uh, the feasibility study was accepted as, yes, it's doable. Uh, credit for that goes to uh, to uh, Colonel Frisbee, Larry Ropka, and Ben Kraljev, and Don Blackburn. So uh, once that was uh, done, uh, the uh, whole thing was presented to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Okay. Now, I don't know how many people uh, participate in there. And Joint Chiefs of Staff... Uh, like the plan. They were so excited about it. And uh, immediately, right there, it was decided that this has to be conducted for secrecy directly under the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that there'd be absolutely no participation from anybody from Vietnam or Southeast Asia, that the whole concept, the plan and training, everything has to be done in the United States. And then the trained force, Joint Contingency Task Force, would be imported into the war zone 
and execute the mission in secret. The North Vietnamese were always capable of uh, learning about any rescue attempts that we had in Vietnam. That's why none of them were successful. So this was the biggest fear. So right. that decision was made. Hey, we're going to do it all here uh, in, in the United States. Now, once that was done, that's the, the answer to your question. They said, we need uh, ground troops, the most experienced, best available troops that we have right here in theater. Well, where would that be? That would be Fort Bragg, Special Forces. Best man for that? Well, who would that be? Bull Simons. Uh, he was on one uh, raid during the Second World War uh, to uh, re rescue Cabanatuan uh, 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 in the uh, Philippines. So uh, he uh, was selected to lead the ground force, but right. uh, Air Force was given the primary responsibility for it. Why? Because Air Force element was so important uh, right. to getting there. And uh, so who in the Air Force? Well, who owned combat talents? Uh, General Manor. He was the chief of Air Force Special Operations at that time, based in Florida. Huh. Where's the best place to train? Well, in that huge complex outside of Eglin that huge secure zone where all kinds of uh, experimentation was being conducted. So uh, there, uh, since uh, everybody uh, was uh, doing uh, secret uh, things there, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, uh, he said, uh, we'll be able to hide uh, this small train force and uh, uh, succeed in uh, doing everything in secret. So that's how things fell up into place. Uh, Eglin Air Force Base for training, and the best individual to lead it uh, was Bull Simons. Yeah. And so Bull after they— Bull... Oh, I was, I'm sorry to interrupt. So they say they got Bull Simons, and um, when did they— So everybody knows that uh, as this raid, as the Sante Raid, but the code name, I think, was actually Operation Ivory Coast— so when did they come up with that code name uh, was, and was that developed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff at that time? Okay. The first name, first name was Polar Circle. That was Colonel Frisbee. Uh, his feasibility study was Polar Circle. And that decided who the participants would be who would execute it, okay? The Ivory Coast was the follow-on uh, phase of the operation. Ivory Coast was the training preparation uh, for the raid and deployment. Okay, uh, got you. And the uh, execution phase was Operation Kingpin. So okay. uh, the Sante raid had three 
code names. Three elements to it. Okay, gotcha. Yes. So I'm also really interested to to learn about how you got involved and selected for participation in the Sante raid. How how did they come to to pull you into this? Okay. Well, uh, it, it was the, the feasibility study determined, hey, we're going to uh, need two combat Talon uh, aircraft. Uh, that uh, uh, one combat Talon aircraft will escort uh, a formation of uh, Jolly Green Giants into the compound and uh, another one will escort uh, A1Es who will provide the interdiction uh, over over the area uh, during uh, the extraction of, of prisoners, freeing of, of prisoners. Uh, so uh, uh, let me see, I kind of lost my train of thought. Uh, so uh, yes, so it was a given that they would come to Pope Air Force Base uh, where uh, you had uh, an aircraft uh, right. that was capable of that. Well, we needed two aircraft, however. Uh, so they said there is a unit in uh, Germany, uh, 7th Special Operations Aircraft. So we're going to get one aircraft uh, from there. Well, uh, they didn't. The uh, uh, unit in uh, Germany... Uh, was running a flintlock operation at that time. It's an annual special forces uh, exercise. And they needed all four of their airplanes to withdraw. One of those airplanes would have been uh, uh, waving the flag. Suspicious to them, right? That's right. So uh, just so happens that at that particular time, uh, one of the aircraft from Vietnam uh, was uh, uh, conduct, was in uh, uh, Lockheed Air Service in Ontario, California, just outside of Norton Air Force Base. It was going uh, some renovation. Okay, so there it is. Uh, we had two uh, aircraft uh, in the United States. So... The renovation uh, was just people in uh, Vietnam at Nha Trang were told uh, uh, there were complications or whatever the story was. Uh, they were not getting their airplane back. Gotcha. <laughs> they did not, did not know it was being used in, in Florida in training. So anyway, that's how we came down with two, uh, two combat talents, one from Pope Air Force one today. Now, uh, crew for that air, aircraft, uh, North Vietnamese aircraft, crew came from Germany, uh, full combat-ready crew. Uh, they were able to sacrifice uh, one. They had six crews and four airplanes. So they were able to uh, sacrifice, take out one crew uh, from the exercise. And uh, there wasn't such a big problem at uh, Pope Air Force Base to get an aircraft, especially to fly it at Eglin, because hey, we were doing that all the time. Right. There was uh, always something happening at Eglin. That was our headquarters. 
so it, it was, hey, everything just did fit. How, how did it come down from from up above? Did did one of your senior officers come to you? Because I think you were a major at the time. Did one of them come to you and say, Major Gargas, you you're you're going on a mission, or or did they ask for uh, volunteers? Okay. How did that work? Okay, uh, well, <clears throat> first, uh, two gentlemen that I already mentioned, uh, Robka and Kraljev from Saxa uh, came unexpected uh, and uh, asked for a special flight, short flight, uh, to demonstrate the capability of terrain-following radar. That's what they requested. And uh, they asked, is John Gargas available to fly it? I was not because I came from a night mission uh, at four o'clock in the morning, and I was in crew rest. They turned up at eight o'clock, and uh, uh, they were gone by noon. So uh, they put together a basic crew, not not a full crew, uh, just a, a couple pilots and a navigator, and uh, uh, they flew over PD River. Uh, they were uh, wanted to know. Uh, how good the radar was to identify curves in the river and all of that. Uh, so uh, after a short flight, they said they were satisfied. Well, the cover story for that was, uh, well, we were already uh, developing a mod- new modification uh, for uh, combat talents uh, with inertial navigation system and all of that, blah, blah, blah. So uh, we... Everybody at Pope knew that this was happening, and also everybody knew that John Gargas was involved in it because I was working with Larry Ropka and Ben Kraljev, who were project managers for for this uh, modification. So it was uh, that did not wave the flag uh, why I was why they wanted me, but uh, then. Uh, a few days later, uh, there was a request came in that uh, they uh, needed an aircraft in uh, at Eglin uh, with uh, a crew, and uh, uh, they requested Friday Blosh. He was the pilot, Lieutenant Colonel, who uh, did the demonstration right, and it, and oh, he was the best demonstrator, demonstrator of our capabilities. Uh, we used him to uh, uh, newcomers before for their virgin flight in the combat talent. Uh, he was a master of uh, showing them what aircraft could do. So anyway, he was kind of a shoo-in, and he called me immediately, and he said, uh, uh, John, you know that stuff with uh, Larry Ropka and Ben Kraljev? I said, yeah, I, I don't know what they uh, wanted, but he said, uh, there is uh, uh, training, some experimentation uh, up ahead that uh, will result in a mission, and uh, there are some hazards. Uh, are you uh, available for that? I said, yeah, hey, you know, this is it. This is, uh, I immediately thought, hey, w- why not? Uh, we'll be uh, demonstrating or experimenting with the uh, future radar, Mod 70 radar. 
So I became a volunteer. And then uh, Friday Blush, uh, individually and, well, uh, the other command, commander and ops officer were involved. Uh, they uh, in- interviewed uh, people and uh, came up with the volunteers. Uh, so, so that's, when, that's when they crew when, when they got everybody down. So you you were saying before you trained at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. When when they got you all down to Florida, um, were you guys in a secluded area there, oh. separate from everyone else on the base? No, no, uh, we were not secluded. Uh, well, most of us. Uh, lived well uh, here and I, I have to talk about other crews uh, too <clears throat> but first uh, take combat talents uh, we the officers stayed in the BOQ the people officers that came from Germany also stayed in the BOQ uh, the enlisted were allowed to uh, go to uh, motels. Also, uh, the individuals that we re- received from Southeast Asia, uh, we had uh, uh, five pilots from Nakam Phanam, and uh, uh, we had four uh H uh, H uh, fifty three jo- super jolly green giants uh, from uh, Southeast Asia uh, that uh, were detailed. Uh, th- they also volunteered uh, th- for a special project, so they came to uh, Florida and they stayed uh, in motels. So you know, we we were spread out. Hey, it was quite normal. With with uh, big influx of people coming and going for projects, uh, uh, so much of the, the time BOQ was full, or airman quarters were full. So uh, you went uh, to a, a, a motel, and once you were in a motel, you stayed there. Well, we had people who stayed there almost three months. So uh, no, we 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 were spread out. Now, the other feature of us was that uh, we were civilian clothing. We did not work during the day. Uh, well, we started. We, initially, we started working in a day. But once we started uh, nighttime work, uh, during the day, we were civilian clothing. Uh, it was a special forces uh, uh, area, so we had many friends that knew us from Pope. Uh, and they would say, hey, what are you doing here? What are you doing? Plus, they would see our aircraft, uh, say, what's going on? And we say, oh, you know. But then everybody knew that things were secret, so uh, right. we were not bothered. Uh, but then you're still there three weeks later, and they say, you still around? So what's, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, so, so I've read your book. Um, I read your book on this, and in the book it, it talked a lot about that 
um, the government had counterintelligence officers there to keep mm-hmm. an eye on you, uh, to make sure none of the Sante Raiders were having inappropriate conversations to accidentally let out any information. Can it, can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That, that was uh, very strict. <coughs> Yeah, we were we were drilled on security. Uh, even though, uh, well, uh, l- let me put it this way. <clears throat> uh, I'll, I'll get to your question, but I, I I need to give you a little bit of a background. Uh, <clears throat> uh, once we came there, uh, we didn't know what this was all about. We were full of questions. Uh, nobody nobody was was telling us. What the uh, what what we'd be doing? Uh, then uh, General Manor uh, uh, had a meeting, but this meeting was for uh, special operations planners for air operations planners. Well, uh, that was a small group. Uh, that's where we met uh, with Ropka. Kraljev, there was Aircraft Commander Friday Blosh, it was Harry Panel, it was myself and Cecil Clark. That was it. That that was the first uh, operational plans uh, group. And uh, well, let me ask we you this: were, So how we were how were you planning? If if, if you what? didn't know what the mission okay. was, how did you plan? Well, okay. I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting to that. So, we we were the only ones that knew, that initially, that knew that there was a, a prisoner of war training. So, then they said, uh, they told us the reason. Uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have to uh, train in formation flying. Uh, we'll be formation flying with helicopters. Not not only. Uh, Jolly Green helicopters, but an Army Huey helicopter. So we have to do some experiments during the day. But uh, you are the only ones who know at this time why we are doing this. It's important that all the rest, rest of the crew members have no knowledge of what's happening. For all practical purposes, and this was initially, uh, we are developing new search and rescue procedures uh, nighttime. Well, it was a daytime war in floor, in uh, Vietnam. Helicopters flew only during daytime. So this was something new. There was no nighttime refueling of helicopters until we got into it uh, during the training at Sante Raid. Okay, so this this was... Uh, the, the initially, this is what we knew. Then, uh, when uh, uh, people from uh, uh, Ramstein from Germany came, uh, the aircraft commander uh, Franklin and uh, Tom Stiles, navigator, those two were added to the uh, mission planning staff. So uh, that was the small group. Now. And were we controlled? Yes, we were. We had two counterintelligence agents. Uh, one uh, was uh, uh, 
Max Newman, uh, he was a major, uh, Army major in the Air Force. It was uh, Captain uh, uh, Bay, B.A., B.A., uh, Dick B.A. Dick B.A. became uh, uh, major general in, in charge of Air Force Special Air Force uh, uh, counterintelligence, Air Force intelligence. Uh, anyway, these two were with us all the time. Uh, Max Newman uh, would wear disguises because he would go to local bars. See, uh, we had people who were living in motels uh, downtown, so he knew where everybody lived, and he more or less kept track of them. Uh, so he, he was showing up at bar, at the local bars where the, the raiders would go during their liberty hours ex and exactly. see what they were talking about, basically. Exactly. And uh, uh, What was his favorite disguise? He, Did he, he have a he favorite? Doesn't, he doesn't admit it, uh, but uh, uh, he would often go in drag. Would he really? As a, <laughs> uh, yeah, as a female person in, in Yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. So, uh, I mean, he's, he's a great actor. Now, uh-uh, he, he, he will not, I did not put that in the book. He doesn't want that known. But, yeah, <laughs> he's still alive. He lives in uh, Surprise, Arizona. <laughs> I talk to him every now and then. Hopefully he's going to uh, show up to the next Sante Raiders reunion, uh, I, maybe. I, I, I hope so, but I doubt it. Uh, I hope so, but I doubt it. And, and he's not not in very good health. Okay, uh, Dick B. A. Uh, he would more or less focus on the. He was an Air Force officer and would uh, focus on Air Force uh, guys. Well, <laughs> the uh, Army was confined. They were the only ones who were completely isolated at Duke Field, uh, so they didn't have the liberties that that we had. So. Uh, uh, Max Newman was uh, uh, really investigating uh, uh, those people who were living downtown, and they were Air Force. But we were forbidden. Uh, word Sante was forbidden. There was no such thing. Uh, well, did Sante you even know? Let, so let me ask you, at this point in time, so you said the word Sante was forbidden, at this point in time, did you know that the target, the mission, was the Sante prison? Yes, yes. General Manor told us. Okay. He he, he told us where it was and all of that because uh, he uh, he asked me very specifically. Okay, uh, this is Sante. I say I know where Sante is, <laughs> and he yeah. said, "Can can we get there?" I said, "Yes, we can." Well, but anyway. Uh, Oh, let me see. Lost my train of thought. No, go go ahead. What what was I? So what was I, the question? so I was asking you. So you at that point knew that the okay. mission objective yes. was the Sante that, prison, right. but none of the yes. Army Special Forces Raiders it, knew that at that, that time, did they? No, no, our, not none of the Army uh, knew it. Eventually, up until. Uh, the time uh, uh, we came to uh, Takli to Southeast Asia, there were only four people, four army people 
who knew what the mission was. That was Bull Simons, Bud Sidnor, Dick Meadows, and Dr. Cataldo. Okay. Those were the only only four people who knew uh, who knew the target area. Now, instead of Sante, we used the word Barbara. Barbara okay. was the code name for Sante, for Sante. and Bar- Barbara was the CIA mock-up uh, of uh, the Sante prison camp. Gotcha. So, so that's 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 the word uh, we used, and. Uh, uh, so this is what the Snoops, uh, B.A. and uh, Newman, were uh, hunting for. Our telephones were monitored. Uh, we also had, now, uh, Newman and uh, B.A. Uh, had other people assigned to them. We never met them. We never knew who they were. So... Uh, they're not getting credit for being Sante Raiders. Uh, so only, only two spooks who are getting credit are Newman and B.A. Gotcha. Others were, uh, others were uh, didn't know what the mission was all about. Right. They just knew that they were supposed to monitor uh, this and that. And uh, uh, they were kept in the dark, but they were providing uh, the... Uh, 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 Newman and uh, uh, BA with uh, essential essential elements of information. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> okay. Well, since you mentioned Barbara, so the CIA mock-up of the Sante prison that was put together there in in Eglin Air Force Base, I got to ask you this. Um, I, again, I read this in your book. Um, the the, the U.S. at that time was very concerned that if we, if we constructed a Sante prison duplicate there at Eglin, that a Russian spy satellite would fly over and see that. So how were they able to prevent uh, that kind of thing from happening? Okay. Well, uh, so let's talk about Army. <clears throat> Army Special Forces were housed, uh, uh, with the exception of the, of the officers, they were housed at Duke Field. Duke Field is uh, uh, northeast of uh, Eglin. Uh, outside of Duke Field, there was a S2 or C2 range where uh, they constructed a replica of a Sante camp that was geometrically exact, uh, but the walls of the buildings and everything was, was uh, two by fours with target cloth. The uh, trenches around the uh, air raid trenches around the camp, uh, there were also there were dugout channels, but they were only about six or eight inches deep. Everything was done to scale. Also, the road was was there, and uh, uh, all the way uh, to the bridge. Bridge uh, on a on the side of the uh, 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 the Sante City. Now, 
we were yes the, these uh, uh, our spooks they were concerned that the Russian satellite would be able uh, to uh, photograph it and uh, uh, identify the geometry well uh, we uh, had uh, an aircraft Air Force aircraft come fly over from at different altitudes and uh, take photographs of the range of the of the mock-up ground mock-up and uh, it was impossible to identify it uh, why because due to traffic the tractors in the uh, uh, in the uh, in the trucks that brought in the equipment, the two-by-fours and so on. They made so many tracks uh, all over the place that uh, from the air, you could not you could not distinguish a, a, anything, any kind of a sense, geometric sense uh, to that. However, uh, people on the ground, wow, uh, they could count the steps uh, from, uh, uh, from the trench, uh, to the tree because we even positioned the trees in, in the proper places. Uh, trees were uh, potted plants. So uh, for training purposes, uh, the uh, geometry in the layout of the camp uh, was exact. So uh, people could learn their route, uh, know where the tree is and, and so on. Gotcha. But it was impossible to see it from there. All right. Now, there is a misconception in the first uh, book that Shemer wrote. He said that they had to take it, uh, take take it apart every time the satellite flew. Uh-uh. Uh, uh, I think they toyed with it. Uh, they they might have done it once, uh, but uh, they stopped it because it would have been a useless exercise. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. In the next episode with Colonel Gargas, we'll discuss more details of the secret training for the Sante Raid mission. Be sure to check out the details section of this podcast episode where you can find the Amazon link to the Sante Raid book written by Colonel Gargas. You can also find his website there, which includes articles, pictures, and video, which will give you a better understanding for the scope of this mission. If you enjoy the Yankee Air Pirate podcast series, please recommend it to a friend and share the link to the podcast on your social media pages. It's an easy and a free way to help us spread these historic stories. You can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi.